Our Father, we come to you with hearts filled with thanksgiving for all that you have done for us. Lord, we are especially blessed as we study the story of creation at the wonderful things which you created out of literally nothing. A God who is so great to bring the universe into existence by the power of his word. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that you created us as men and women in the image of God. And Father, yet you have sent to us your Son to recreate that image in us that was destroyed so much by the fall. And Father, I pray that it will be our daily desire to walk in the way that you have set before us. And as we think of this particular week in which we have a national day of thanksgiving, Father, I pray that as we partake of special food and we have special company, that we will put you first in our thoughts and we will together remember that this is a time of thanksgiving to God for all that you have done. We're thankful for this morning in which we can gather together for the fellowship we can have as brothers and sisters in Christ. So speak to us now, I pray, through the word. We invite your spirit to be our teacher to be the one to give us truth and enable us to walk in the truth that you give to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you will look at the first chapter of Genesis, I would like to reread verses 24 through 31. That is the section we're looking at right this moment, this morning. Genesis 1:24 Then God said, "Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind." And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now we've worked down through this passage on your outline on page 7 to point C towards the bottom, about three-quarters of the way down the page, you see the little letter C, and that's where we're at, discussion of the image of God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Does it mean that our physical form is a small-scale model of His? Well, of course, if you look at the painting on the Sistine Chapel, yes. There is God with his gray beard and his gray hair reaching out and touching the finger of Adam who simply looks like a young man and God looks like an old man. And of course, that's many, the vision that many people have, you know, the old man upstairs idea about God sitting in a rocking chair, rocking back and forth and very benevolently looking down at us and all of our sin and saying, well, you know, try to do better tomorrow kind of idea. And if you look at the various religions of the world, you find that to be true also, don't you? In so many religions of the world, uh, of course, we already have referred to the ancient Greeks and Romans and the great pantheon of gods and goddesses that they had all made in human form. They were just superhumans, you know, bigger and, 
and everything man did, they did in a grander scale, including all of the, you know, <laughs> downcast factors in man's existence, degraded factors in man's existence. Now, it's true that in Scripture, and, and you've read it many times as I have, that anthropomorphic terms are used, speaking of God in Scripture. But it's also, I think, very important for us to remember and to note that these are figurative terms. Whenever it talks about the eye of God, the hand of God, or, or whatever, these are figurative terms. For example, uh, in Psalm 91.4, we read, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will seek refuge. That doesn't mean, of course, that God has wings, in the sense that a bird has wings. It's, it's figurative speech. Uh, Jesus said, I would have gathered you as a chicken or a hen gathers her chicks. Uh, we don't think of God, uh, of course, as, as a supreme chicken. We think of God often in physical terms because that's what we have seen portrayed for us by the artists. But that is, of course, not what God is. In the passage where we read of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, there right outside of uh, Sychar. We read in John 4, 24, where she is talking with him and he is instructing her as to whom God is. She sa he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's a key point of doctrine for us to remember. Because so much of Christianity, what's called Christianity, has through the centuries become focused on the sensual, the physical. You know, where you have fine robes and you have incense and you have statues and, and paintings and all of these things which create a very sensual religion. Where you walk into a, a cathedral with soaring ceilings and, you know, gothic windows and stained glass. It's very beautiful and in many ways it, it does maybe focus your mind on God, but it is sensually oriented. There's no doubt about it. And of course, if you study the evolution of uh, certain aspects of the Christian church, you know, you, you can see when those aspects came in. And they came in as a result of the impact of paganism upon the church in the years following Constantine and Theodosius II in the fourth century. Clearly, from Scripture, we realize God does not have a human form. He is an omnipresent spirit and obviously could not be limited by possession of a physical body as ours is. Now, we know from Scripture that it's true that God does appear or has appeared from time to time in human form. And one of the earliest examples of that is in Genesis chapter 18, in an account that we are quite familiar with, the account where Abraham and God discuss the situation involving Sodom. In chapter 18 of Genesis, in verse 1, Now the Lord appeared to him, this is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran out from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the earth. Now it says in the first phrase, now the Lord appeared to him. And then it talks about three men. Look at verse 16. Then the men, arose, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then, of course, we have the account where Abraham intercedes for Sodom. This is called a theophany, where God manifests himself in human form. God and his angels, in Scripture we note many times, have appeared to men and to women in the form of a human being. But obviously, that does not mean that either God or the angels have a human form. God also appeared to Moses in a burning bush. That doesn't make God a bush. 
and we well know that. What, of course, we do think of frequently and are blessed by is the fact that God the Son did come and take on human form and become a servant, we read. Let's look at that passage which so eloquently describes the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. Looking at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form, morphe, the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Not, not, not grasped in that he's reaching out for it, but something that he already had in his possession, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now some, of course, interpret this as the beginning of Jesus, and that God created this man and, and endued him with the power to become a lesser God than the Father. But that isn't what the passage says. It says that God the Son took on the form, although he was God in every essence and had the power of God in every way. He took on the form of a servant. He became as we are, subjected himself to human flesh and walked here on this planet in human flesh and was tempted in all points as we are tempted, we're told in Scripture. This, of course, is the incarnation. God putting on human flesh for 35 years or so as he walked on this planet. Now, when he went to heaven, he went to heaven in a form that appeared bodily. But we think of Jesus often in that bodily form, but is he limited by a bodily form? We, we talk about Jesus dwelling in our hearts. If he dwells in my heart, in your heart, in your heart, can he be only in a body? No, he's uh, an eternal spirit. He's an omnipresent spirit. All of the qualities of the Trinity are in Jesus as they are in the Father and in the Spirit. He, he is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. All of these characteristics, these attributes of God are his. Therefore, he is not eternally dwelling limited by a human body. Now, although God does not himself possess a fleshly body, he did create our bodies to, to function in God-like ways. Now, I'm thinking in terms of the rest of this planet upon which we live and the other kinds of creatures that live here. For example, we have legs and feet that enable us to move over the terrain of this earth in a wonderful way. And to think what man is able to do Really, there are very few creatures on this planet, in fact, none that I can think of, that can do what man can do. If you think about it for a moment, um, how many creatures that you think of can, can dwell in the Arctic and dwell in the tropics, can climb to the top of the highest mountain and dive to the depths of the sea? How many creatures can do that? Really none. Man alone really can do that. You, you think about the fact that that men and women are able to walk to the top, not really walk, but climb to the top of a mountain that's 29,000 feet high. And it has been done without the aid of oxygen, that is, auxiliary oxygen. And man has actually stayed overnight, not on purpose, but he has done it, at 28,000 feet above sea level and survived. And man, of course, is able to dive, and he has dived to the very bottom 
of the Marianas Trench, 37,000 feet below sea level. It's, this is almost, these are sort of godlike characteristics the man has. We have arms and we have hands that enable us to do useful and beautiful things. I stand in awe as I look at some of the paintings and the sculptures and the great architecture that has been done by men and women through time. And I imagine, how, how do they do it? If I were to put my hand to a brush and put it in the paint, put it on a canvas, I mean, you know, probably about as good as a gorilla could do, you know. But, but there are people who can replicate nature in its, in its beauty. I'm amazed at people like Audubon who, who could draw a bird that looks so real, almost like it would fly off the page. And Michelangelo who could sculpt David so that you could see his emotion at the moment he, was, he faced Goliath. More so than even in a portrait of a human being, it would seem. With these hands, with these arms, we're able to, to climb, to catch, to cradle and to crush. Godlike characteristics. And we have the five senses. Now, not all of us have the five senses to the same acuity uh, as one another, but we all have the, taste, uh, the sense of taste and of, of smell, of touch, of hearing and of sight to one degree or another. And, of course, these senses enable us to understand our environment, to sense danger, to sense security. You know, you, on a cold, rainy, blustery night, you crawl in under the covers and pull them up and you just settle right down in there. Doesn't that feel good? No. That's our senses telling us that we're secure in this, this sort of little cocoon that we put ourselves into. We're able to perceive beauty. We can hear beautiful music. We can see beauty. Really, as far as we know, there is no other creature on this planet that has any kind of concept of beauty. And this is one of the big difficulties with the whole idea of evolution. The whole idea of evolution, if you have studied it, is that you have a slight little modification, a mutation, which is somewhat beneficial, and therefore it is replicated because the creatures with that beneficial mutation are more likely to survive than those without. And so it's carried on, and then another one takes place, and another one takes place, and, and you might argue some rationality for, for certain physical characteristics that way, but how would you ever, how would you ever explain the, the perception of beauty? How could that ever evolve in a human being? Because if, if we live in a naturalistic, mechanistic universe, how, how would these things that are God-like characteristics ever, ever emerge? I mean, this is a question that cannot be answered by the evolutionist. There is no answer to that. Above all, of course, we have rational self-consciousness. Some a little more rational than others. And, and this enables us to use these characteristics that we've already talked about, our legs, our hands, our, our senses, for our benefit and hopefully for the benefit of the community. Mankind is a communal creature. Most of us are. I mean, there are the grizzly atoms around uh, who would rather be in the company of a bear than of a person or whatever. But, but most of us are, are communal creatures, and, and we want to live together. And although there are certain kinds of animals that have this somewhat of this kind of a relationship, not like man does. So we could say that, in a sense... Our bodies do have godlike qualities and characteristics about them. But it is our eternal spirit that has been made in the image of God, not the physical body. This passage that we read in, in Genesis is the only passage in Scripture where both the terms image and likeness are used together. Now, if you were to go to the commentaries and research this, you're going to discover there are a lot of different explanations as to what that means. And, and there's none, no consensus, really, uh, as to what this really means. It seems like simply a reinforcement of the reality of the fact that we really were made in the image of God in our spirits. And therefore, we can commune with the one who is our creator. Some see the image of God in man's vice-regency, 
That is, that is his dominion over the earth. And they refer to passages such as Psalm 8. Psalm 8, a, a beautiful psalm of praise to God and a statement of the dignity of man. Look at verse 4. Psalm 8, 4. What is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the birds of the field, beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. This, this is a statement of man's vice-regency, of his dignity. Of the fact that we are made a little lower than God, some translations use the word angels there, whatever. Uh, we are far above all other created things. It, it seems really strange to me. I, I was rereading an article last night that was published in the U.S. News and World Report several months ago, which basically says, who were we? That's the title of the article. Who, who were we? Or something, something to that sense. And the article goes on to talk about how we got here and how we evolved from uh, Homo habilis through Homo erectus, and, and then we ultimately became Homo sapien in the two branches of Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal, and how Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon coexisted side by side, but there were certain advantages that Cro-Magnon had over Neanderthal, and that was primarily that he had a little bit higher intellectual level, although Neanderthal had a bigger brain. And Neanderthal was stronger but shorter, but it was, it was the abilities of Cro-Magnon to uh, develop uh, uh, tools and weapons that were more refined and, and to use them in a better way that gave him ultimately the advantage over, over Neanderthal. And you know, when you read that and you think about this, how blind they are to what a man really is and what a woman really is. To, to think of men and women as simply one step higher than the other primates, sort of an advanced gorilla. You know, Darwin in his own writing said, if I am descended from a monkey, then I don't have the intellect to know that I'm descended from a monkey. <laughs> and you think about that for a moment, and that's true. <laughs> there is no way in which the human race could have evolved to the level that we have evolved naturally. Because the gap between us and the highest of the primates is so gigantic, so great. Oh, sure, they have arms and legs and toes and feet and a brain and ears and eyes and many things like we are. It's simply God chose a pattern, and he replicated this pattern. Not that there is a, a line of, of descent here or ascent. And it's, it's the person who's blind and rejects the godlike characteristics of man that insists that man is simply an advanced animal. Obviously, a person who does not want to be responsible to a god who might hold him responsible for his actions. It's an age-old belief. I mean, it goes back to the ancient Greeks as far as records are concerned, and who knows beyond that? Now, when we get to the, oh, about uh, ten chapters into Genesis, we'll see that there were some individuals at that particular time whose ideas were really not very different about what mankind really, really is. We're made in the image of God. That image of God, I think, extends beyond the vice regency, however. Not that it excludes that. I think we must include man's spiritual, rational, and moral capacities. These are in the image of God. The abilities to appreciate beauty, as we've already discussed for a moment. The ability to love. Not, not just have a, sort of a, an affection for, like maybe two doves somehow are stay together, 
but to really love and to reach out and to care for another person or other persons. And to understand something of the nature of God. Now, what we know about God, of course, comes, the Scripture tells us, first of all, in Romans, that we can understand something about God from the created universe. That we can perceive the beauty and all that God has made, and we can perceive something of God in that. But our real understanding of God comes through the revealed Word. Only by the revelation of God can we really understand something of the nature of God. But that we can do that. That, that we, have, we understand how to read and to communicate, and then to communicate ideas that are, that are simply beyond, I want this and I want that, you know. To, to have ideas about something as grand as God. And, and to, <laughs> if you've never studied comparative religion, you need to do that sometime. Because as you study the religions of the world, you're going to find that the vast majority of, of the religions of the world really don't get much beyond the, the sensual aspects of life. Um, Christianity uh, portrays a God. Well, why was Christianity outlawed in ancient Rome? Well, one of the reasons Christianity was outlawed in ancient Rome was the fact that the God could not be put in the pantheon. Now, if you've ever been in Rome, in downtown Rome, there's an old, old building. It goes clear back to the first century called the Pantheon. It's, it's, it's got this kind of a, like a Greek facade on it, but basically it's, it's a hemispherical building. And, and if you go inside, you discover that the, the, uh, if it had been completed altogether, it would have been a perfect sphere and all the diameters would have been the same. And inside this building are all these niches. And in these niches at one time were the statues of the gods that had been absorbed by the Romans. But the Christians had no statue to put in the pantheon. And therefore the Christians were considered to be atheists because they had no visible God. The Romans just couldn't get beyond that. At least many of them couldn't. And so Christianity was made an illegal religion, that being one of the reasons, not the only reason, of course. But it's our ability as human beings, to understand something of an invisible God, a God that we know by faith, that reflects something of the image of God in us. I'd like to say a uh, quote again a little bit from John Calvin. He says, uh, he, be he believed that man's vice regency was a part of the image of God, though a very small portion of the image of God. Since the image of God has been destroyed in us by the fall, we may judge from its restoration what it originally had been. Paul says that we are transformed into the image of God by the gospel. And according to him, spiritual regeneration is nothing else than the restoration of that same image. The image of God appeared when Adam was endued with right judgment had affections in harmony with reason, had all of his senses sound and well-regulated, and truly excelled in every good thing. Thus the chief seat of the divine image was in his mind and heart, where it was imminent. Yet was there no part of him in which some scintillations of it did not shine forth." Now, I know that not all of us agree with everything that Calvin teaches. But there's a lot of truth in what he has said here. And particularly in that last phrase, where he, he believed that as Adam walked as, as, as an undeformed and undiminished image of God, that in every part of his being there radiated out something of that image of God in the words which he spoke, in the attitude which he displayed, in the way that he and Eve dealt with each other, reflected that image of God. They were able to love each other in a way that you and I cannot love each other because there was no curse. There was no deformity of, of mind and moral. And so if, if you and I were to meet Adam before he, he fell, we, we would almost consider him to be a god because he would be so different from us. 
and Eve, both the same. This, this image of God would come out of their character all the time. And as you and I walk with the Lord after coming to that place of regeneration, this should be our goal, that God will daily restore more of that image in us, make us more like Christ. Sort of the picture that, I don't remember where I read it, but, it, but it's such a beautiful picture. It's sort of like as Michelangelo took his hammer and his chisel and began to chip away in that big block and, and carve that glorious image of David. So God is doing to us. We're just this, this, this rough block, crude, deformed block. But as we're regenerated, Christ begins to chip away and he begins to, to mold us into the image of himself. And, and that's why we walk, or at least should be the reason why we walk the way we walk and talk the way we talk. It should be our desire to be in as we are today because as we do this, he's able to polish us a little bit more so that as we walk in this world, people will see that we are different. Just as we would perceive Adam and Eve in their unfallen state as, as, as godlike people if we watch them very long. So it should be that the world looks upon us and sees that we are different. We don't have to try to talk their ear off to convince them that we're a Christian. They simply know there's something about us to begin with that's not like the rest of mankind around. And, and, and really that's the application of the study, I think, of the image of God. Is are we allowing God to recreate that image in us? We've begun at the point of new birth. But I think we always need to picture new birth as that moment when, uh, when a spiritual baby is born. And that spiritual baby needs a lot of nur nurturing before he or she is going to grow up into maturity, full stature of a man, as Paul talks about him. And, and we have to remember that we're not all in the same stage. And so when we look at one another and we deal with one another, we must remember that maybe we or they are more immature. And so we can't expect the same thing from each individual, and we need to take that into account as we deal with one another. And of course, being in prayer for one another is what makes a big difference. It's hard to be really critical in a wrong way of somebody for whom we're praying in, a, in an avid way. That's why the Scripture says, pray for one another. Paul says, brethren, pray for us. If Paul needed prayer, what do we need? You know, if, if a man who walked with God as Paul did was constantly requesting prayer, then, then we ought to be also asking that God would minister to, to each one of us and, and to raise us up into the stature of the fullness of Christ. Clearly, the real you and the real me that has any affinity for God is not the body. <laughs> because the flesh is at war with us. Satan has an ally, my flesh. And, and we have to consciously reject the desires of the flesh. So certainly it's not the flesh that is the image of God. It's not even the animating life force which causes us to get up and get going every day. For some of us, a little less animating than others. But it is the spirit. This body is growing old, in case you haven't noticed. And someday, that animating life force will be extinguished. And this body will be laid to rest. My father was a professional photographer. Now, I, by what I'm going to say, I, I hope I don't step on anybody's toes, but he used to be called every once in a while to go and photograph the corpse in the casket. Now, I've never been able to figure that one out. You know. I, I would rather have a picture of my father in his vitality than there in a casket because that's not my father. That's, that's not whoever the loved one is. They're gone. That's the clay that will soon not look like that anymore. Now, they have preserved len, linen for 
lo these 70 years almost. <laughs> and, uh, but, hey, Lenin's gone, and uh, whatever they preserve there, it might as well be wax. It would be just as realistic. Uh, this life is going to be gone out of us, but the Spirit lives on eternally. Because you and I have never known anything besides life in a body. That is the reason I believe that one day we're going to be given new bodies. And that's the promise in the, in the well-known passage in 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to just read that again in the light of, of what we're talking about here. In the light of the original body, in the light of the image of God, what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the new body that you and I will be given one day. A, a perfect body. You know what's going to be interesting about it? We'll all have perfect form, but we won't care. You know, not in the sense as we care now. You and I notice, uh, I think, altogether that the people who usually advertise things on television are, are not the people who are, quote, the over-the-hill over gang, physically. You know. They're the people who are in the bloom of, of youth and vitality. But that's such a transient thing. But it's held up as if that's the thing we ought to worship. So frustrating, isn't it, <laughs> to worship something that's here today and gone tomorrow, literally. Verse 42 so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Boy, there is nothing more weak, is there, than that body lying in the casket. It doesn't even appreciate the satin and all the gold and other things that are around it. It doesn't even appreciate the ring someone might slip on the finger or the flower that might be placed in the hand. The body does not appreciate it because the life-giving force is gone. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam. It's very interesting here that the word is anthropos here, which, and, and it's separated from Adam to indicate that uh, that was the name of the person. You might say, well, that's what I always thought it was. But if you go back to, the, to Genesis, as we will, we'll notice that the name for man was Adam. I mean, Adam meant man. Uh, one of the names, anyway. Became a living soul. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have, been, we, we have borne the image of the earthy, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly. Praise God. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, <clears throat> but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is the essence. This is the end product. We were created as a race of imperfection. But we have lived our existence for, lo, these thousands of years as a very imperfect race of beings. Fallen from that original state. Decaying. We have not evolved. We have devolved as a race. There is evidence to indicate 
that in many parts of the world where today primitive societies lived, great, much high, more highly advanced societies lived before them. They have gone into the jungles and unearthed things such as in Zimbabwe, which indicated that there was a society at one time that lived at a much higher level than the people of that portion of Africa lived before the Europeans came. Same is true in Japan and other parts of the world. Man has not evolved, he's devolved. Why is it we have greater technology today? Simply because there's more minds to put together. Each one contributes less, but you get enough little pieces put together and you have the whole puzzle, right? And so, so we have these technological advancements, but the human race has not advanced one whit socially, spiritually, morally, any of, the, any of these other ways. As, as Tennessee Ernie Ford sang in the song, we've been fighting and feuding since creation day, almost. Since, Adam, since Cain slew Abel, it, it's been bloody. Winston Churchill said, war is hell. And another one said, history is war. <laughs> and you wonder why you, when you study history, you talk so much about war, because there's so much a war in history. If it isn't war between nations, it's war between individuals. You, you read in American history and you discover such stupid things. Alexander Hamilton, one of the most brilliant people who ever lived in this country, was killed in a stupid duel. And one of the greatest early naval officers in America, American history, one of the first heroes, Stephen Decatur, was killed in a duel. I mean, this is the way it's been. This is evolution. Uh, many of those who believed that mankind was getting better and better and better kind of gave up the idea after they looked at World War I and World War II. They thought, you know, if mankind's improving, why do we have such horrible wars? Why do we have wars greater than any war before? Why do we, do we sit under the threat of nuclear holocaust if we're getting to be better and better? You know, it makes no sense. Of course we're not getting better and better. We, we live in imperfect bodies, but this, this, this mortal shall put on immortality. That's what the great Greeks wanted. The Greeks believed the gods were immortal, and, and they hoped someday at least certain ones that are great heroes could be projected into immortality. And, and many of their gods were former, former human beings that became immortal. There was a whole army of them who marched off to, to fight against the Persians, and uh, Xenophon, one of the great historians, referred to the whole 10,000 as the immortals. Hmm. Yes, well, we are immortal. But this passage in 1 Corinthians is talking about an immor immortality where we will live in the presence of the one who created us in his image. There is an immortality where one dies in the flesh that no one really in his right mind would want if he really believed it hell. It's interesting to note now going back to the first chapter of Genesis that the word translated man as I alluded to it a moment ago in verse 26 where it says and God said let us make man in our image is the word Adam, A-D-A-M in the Hebrew. It's a form of the word Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H, which means earth, as in dirt. <laughs> After the fall, Adam would have to cultivate Adama, from which he was taken that the creature created from the earth would have to cultivate that very earth in order to sustain life. It's also interesting to note, I think, in verse 29, as we read it already earlier this morning, that God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. The human race was, was, was created as a race of herbivores. We were not carnivores. We ate no flesh in the Garden of Eden. Sorry if you're a steak lover. <laughs> that was not the original condition. 
We were made to eat the fruits, the grains, the, the nuts, whatever was available there in the Garden of Eden. We had a professor years ago at Simpson who was from India, had his doctorate from over there in uh, the, the sciences, the life sciences, and one of the things he, he always made a note of was that human dentition is basically not the dentition of a carnivore. It's the dentition of a herbivore. And of course, uh, of course, many people today are, are vegetarians. Now, that's not that God hasn't allowed us to eat meat. He has, and it says so very clearly in Scripture. And uh, even as a theophany, it seems that Abraham uh, served to the theophany meat. But we were not originally made so. Because there was no death of a life-conscious form to happen in that first creation. Now, in the passage uh, here, we discover that the first command given to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, we could wonder why God needed to give that command, knowing the natural tendencies of mankind. In our fallen condition, as we are today, it's hard to imagine, is it not? A perfect world inhabited by millions and maybe even billions of human beings living in perfect harmony and innocence. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would have been like had the world continued on and men and women could have lived in, in the millions and billions in the state Adam and Eve were? without sin, without coveting one another, in innocence and perfect harmony. But that's the way God made the world to be. And he made a planet sufficient to meet the needs of such a population had it ever existed. Certainly planet Earth would have been adequate for billions, because virtually all of the land surface of the earth would have been habitable. There were no Sahara deserts. There were no Antarctic ice caps. As you know, probably, uh, the, uh, the geologists have worked in Antarctica and they've discovered in the rocks fossils of life forms that are tropical, which indicates that uh, climate was different in Antarctica at one time. Some argue that's because Antarctica at one time was up at the equator and it was right next to North America and it kind of scooted down to the underside. You know, maybe it was slippery, I don't know, but it, it, you know, it moved. And of course they have the whole idea of Pangaea, the earth was all one great land mass and it broke up and separated and the scripture does say the earth was divided in those days. Whether that refers to that or not is, is a big question. But uh, could that not better be simply that the climate was different? and that the entire world at one time was basically what we would call a subtropical climate. Ideal for human beings. Today, if you, if you study a, a climate map, a map in which the world has been put together uh, with the various climates depicted on the map, there's a system that was developed by uh, a German by the name of Köppen, uh, in which he uh, divided the world into climates according to letters. A, B, C, D, and E are the major climate zones and then various subdivisions. And uh, between the A climate and all other climates, the line is called the clothesline because that's the line where, which divides the region where man wears clothes purely for ornamentation from the place where man wears clothes for protection. I mean, most of us wear clothes because it's cold or we don't want to get burnt to death by the sun, uh, as well as, of course, hopefully modesty. But if all the world were subtropical in climate, clothes would not be necessary, at least to protect us from the cold. Now, since Noah, mankind has multiplied. Today, there are over 5.4 billion human beings walking on this planet, estimated at least by the United Nations. 5.4 billion. 
The unfortunate fact is that they do not all live at the same economic level. And the reason for this is at least partly the unequitable distribution of arable soil, of temperate climate, and other natural resources, setting aside historical factors. Millions of people starve to death every year. Billions in this world are malnourished. Most of them do not live in America. But not, that's not to say none do. But that is in today, that, that's today on our planet, which very well could feed 5.4 billion people adequately. Thank you. The reason some people are starving and others are malnourished is not that there is not sufficient food or capacity for the production of food. I read a, a study uh, several years ago which was made of India. And the argument is that there is enough arable land in India that if properly cultivated and properly fertilized and so forth could feed the entire population of India without anybody going hungry. Of course, let alone slaughtering a quarter of a billion cattle that wander around there as they please because they're gods. I wonder, McDonald's probably doesn't have any outlets over there, do they? <laughs> probably not. The Golden Arches probably haven't broken into the, I don't know. Uh, they could offer soybean burgers, I suppose. But the reason, the problem today is not overpopulation. The problem of this planet is not overpopulation. The problem of this planet is greed and hatred, arrogance and jealousy. These things that cause one, you know, we keep hearing about the, the supplies we send to Ethiopia or some such place and how it doesn't reach the people who are starving because the people in power keep it under themselves, sell it to make more money, or they drop bombs on it and burn it up. And people starve because they are pawns in the political game that others are playing for their own self-benefit. Sir Thomas More dreamed of a utopia, and he wrote a book about that. And, and he created in his mind an island which he called Utopia, which means nowhere, no place. And he, he said what life would be like on this utopia, and then he contrasted what life was like in the 16th century when he was living. He, he lived at the time of Henry VIII. In fact, he was Henry VIII's uh, count, uh, chief chancellor for three years. <laughs> Turned out to be uh, what sent him on to <laughs> the next uh, life, whatever that was for him. But um, th this utopia wa was a world that was described as no place because there's no place on this planet where it's ever been. Marx and Lenin dreamed of creating such a utopia by creating the dictatorship of the proletariat, which eventually would one day dissolve into a government-less society because every man and every woman would treat one another as brothers and sisters and we'd all love one another and share with one another and there'd be no need for government. Utopia. But this utopian dream has never taken place. In spite of the Jeremy Bentham's and other individuals who have come along and tried to create it here. You've heard of Harmony, Indiana? <laughs> you know? You've heard of these other places where these communal societies have established themselves, many times religiously oriented, and they don't last very long. Five years, maybe. Partly because, you know, everybody's supposed to do every job, and certain ones won't clean the latrine, and certain others will cook, but boy, it's devastating when they do so. And, and, and so these societies do not tend to last. When will there be utopia on this planet? When the Redeemer returns, that's when there will be utopia on this planet. I realize not everybody believes theologically the same, but if you're a premillennial, pre-tribulational uh, person, then you believe in a literal millennium, as seems to be described in Revelation chapter 20, and that is the time when there will be this utopia.
Now, the second command given by God to man and to woman was to rule over the birds, the fish, and everything that moved on the earth. And what does God mean by rule? I think certainly it implied a benevolent rule such as God's was over man. Man didn't feel browbeaten as he walked. He walked in the cool of the evening and talked with his God. I think there was a sense of absolute uh, openness with God and a, a sense of security in his presence, not of threat, not of fear. Together, the man and the woman were to be the viceroy of this planet, and that was, to some extent, a display of the image of God. The animals who lived on the planet at that time were to meet man's needs, but they did so in some kind of a painless symbiosis. You know, we, we, we find that uh, God brought the animals to Adam, and, and Adam named them all, and they weren't afraid of him. And he gave them names according to their character. Wouldn't it be fun to discover how many of the modern names of, of the animals have any root at all in what Adam called them? I don't know if any have, but it would be interesting to know that. Since the fall, human beings have been meeting their needs from the animal realm, birds, fish, and other animals, but hardly in a painless way. Now, not that it's wrong to, to use animals to feed people, but often man's relationship with the kingdom of other living creatures is reckless and devastating. You probably have a reading, as I have, that what is it? Every year, another million species disappears off this planet because of man's recklessness. Throughout history, man has only been able to partially fulfill this command. Some animals have been subservient. But some, such as the larger wild animals, now they're not the great threat to us today that they have been in antiquity. You know, if you read the story, uh, uh, stories like uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears and Little Red Riding Hood, and you find that certain animals play a very prominent role. There's a very good reason for that. They were a threat. If you go back to the 14th century, which was a particularly devastating time in, in European history, there was major war going on, there was, there was massive uh, famine because of climatic changes and war, uh, there was the bubonic plague, which for the first time swept across Europe and carried away one out of every three people from the population of Europe. And there are writings that come from that time where it tells that people traveled together in numbers because wolves would literally come into the streets of the villages to take people because the wolves were hungry too. And so the wolf is a theme that shows up so often in, in European, quote, bedtime stories <laughs> because it was a dangerous creature. And many people today are really fearful of the idea that some are trying to repopulate uh, North America with timber wolves, and they think that, you know, they have these old bedtime story ideas about the wolf. But large animals like that have been a threat to mankind, and insects and, of course, bacteria and virus and other things have kept man on the defensive. We have not ruled. Every time we conquer a disease, another one pops up in the place. We, we eliminate smallpox and something else. AIDS comes along to take his place. Ever since Adam and Eve were rejected from the garden, man has not ruled over this earth as God intended him to. But someday this will change, and I'll, we'll, we'll stop with this passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. This is a picture of the restoration of what God intended. Isaiah 11:6 And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a boy will lead them also the cow and the bear will graze their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox Oh, some argue, oh, it couldn't have been, you know, that the original animals were all supposed to eat green plants because look at the lion. He's a flesh eater only. It says the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra 
and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a reinstitution of the way God intended it to be in the beginning. And all we can say is, Lord, let it be soon. Let it be soon. We'll pick up with the beginning of the second chapter and the seventh day next week.